This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. As a soccer nation, we have a diversity problem on and off of the field, and in more ways than you might think. Although we generally seem to be aware that a diversity problem exists, we don't appear to have a good grasp on the root causes, which is likely why we have not made significant progress in solving anything. As Gary Kleiben, 343's founder, has stated on Twitter, soluble problems will continue to persist unless the root is both identified and undone, end quote. If we're talking about racism and diversity being a systemic thing, which more and more people seem to be coming around to, then the change itself must be a systemic one. People often think the problem is solving the diversity of players or coaches or GMs. And people think that change in these areas is going to enable the systemic change that we need so badly in our country. The reality is that you can fill MLS with black and Latino GMs or even franchise presidents and nothing would change because the problem is much bigger than that. Much bigger than that. It's about opportunity and ownership. In turn, these things would have a greater impact on those positions that I just mentioned. So today we are going to talk openly and honestly about the disenfranchisement, discrimination, and lack of diversity throughout soccer in America. We are going to talk about the lack of diversity throughout the ranks, and we are going to expose the root of the problem that American soccer suffers from. You might have already seen people telling us, now is not the time to be talking about this stuff. Okay, but if we don't educate now, then when? When we've brought up discrimination over the past 10 years, it went ignored. Now, with the recent events, it's imperative that we continue discussing it. And we're going to continue discussing it again and again and again. This isn't taking advantage of current tragedies. On the contrary, we've been beating this drum in public for a decade. It's the ones who haven't been highlighting this over the past 10 years that we should all be suspect of. People and organizations that are pandering by riding the wave of public perception. The inequality and injustices we fight in other facets of society run rampant and unchecked in American soccer, partly because of the it's-just-a-game narrative that is conveniently pushed during times like these. It's not just a game, though. It's so much more than just a game. And you know that. You know that. And that's why you are listening to this podcast. Sports, and soccer specifically, have social, political, and economic implications attached to them, all which affect the livelihoods of millions of individuals and communities and entire nations. So when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we cannot brush aside the fact that, like any other sector, sport is a battleground for equality and opportunity. We'll get this episode started after a quick message about our coaching program, but before we get started... I just want to say thank you for being here with us. It means the world to us, and we couldn't be more appreciative. When it comes to coaching education, being able to discern what will and won't help you can be a costly and confusing exercise. I know this 
because I've experienced it myself. It's frustrating. The internet is flooded with so much information. There are thousands of drills out there for you to watch. There are tons of things that you can try with your teams and with your players. But without context and without proper guidance from a legit mentor, you're not going to get the edge that you're looking for or the results that you want. That's what the 343 Premium Coaching Education Program gets right. It's rooted in the real experiences of coaching boys and girls soccer right here in America. As a coach, Brian Kleiben has faced the same issues like training just twice per week, kids missing practice, field congestion, pay to play, you name it. But by using the 343 framework and staying consistent with the methodology, he has been able to overcome the obstacles and produce college-level, professional, and international caliber players. What the 343 coaching program offers you is unlike anything else in the country because it cannot be replicated. It's not theory or speculation like you'd see in a presentation, and it's not staged and scripted like you'd get at a convention. This program is the work of a master practitioner, his real art, captured and delivered to you in its purest form to help you gain an advantage and become a better coach. The program features videos of Brian mic'd up during actual training sessions with his own players and teams as they prepare for their league games and tournaments. This is the only program in the country that gives you this type of authentic, behind-the-curtain look at player, team, and coach development. So if you're looking for just drills, well, we've got those, but more importantly, we have the mentorship, the proven results, and the community of ambitious coaches that you won't find anywhere else. To experience all of this, consider joining the 343 Premium Coaching Education Program. You can find all of the details at 343coaching.com. To illustrate one of the most obvious examples of the diversity problem we suffer from in American soccer, we can take a look at the history of head coaches in Major League Soccer. Here's the first fact we'll start with. MLS has only hired five full-time black head coaches in its 25-year history. Put differently, only 3.2% of the league's full-time head coaches have been black. Additionally, none of those black coaches have been born in America. On several occasions, MLS has hired black head coaches on an interim basis, like Kobe Jones for LA Galaxy, but the fact remains that just five out of their 156 full-time head coaching hires have been black. In 2018, I interviewed Justin Reed regarding the lack of diversity amongst NCAA soccer head coaches and administrators. According to Reed, out of the 528 NCAA first division soccer programs, both men's and women's, only 43 coaches were identified as black or Latino. And it should be noted that the lack of minority coaches also has an impact on players. Referencing a statement that Mark McKenzie made about having a black coach, former MLS player Amobi Akugo pointed out in a blog post that it's just different when you have a coach that can understand you and has gone through some of the same things that you went through, end quote. Justin Reed also noted that out of 326 Division I NCAA athletic directors, only 20 were black. The problems only got worse in regard to the breakdown of men and women in those same roles and even worse again when it came to minority women. This has a major impact on the hiring process when it comes to head coaches, assistants, and beyond. 
Patrice Paris, a coach that Justin Reed spoke with while gathering his data, said, A majority of the hires that take place at the NCAA level are based on networking rather than one's body of work. Society, in general, relies heavily on personal networks when hiring. For example, if a college student is looking to intern at a tech firm over summer, he might increase his chances by reaching out to a founder that is in his fraternity network. Fraternities and sororities tend to offer job support to past and present members. American soccer at the professional level is frequently referred to as a fraternity. Its members are part of a fortunate group of people who happen to have been around when pro soccer got another jump start with MLS 25 years ago. So, if that fraternity is not diverse, it should be no surprise that hiring based principally on that network would continue to produce a lack of diversity. This is what's known as a vicious cycle. Here's another example of network hiring. As of June 2020, the Major League Soccer Players Association Executive Board featured six white men and just one minority. Historically, the Executive Board has been made up of predominantly white guys. I've provided a link on 343coaching.com so you can see for yourself, but several of these executive board members have moved on to serve as coaches or executives within the league. And many others have been fortunate to be hired to work in the media positions for MLS and USSF's partners. Here's a list of names that you might be familiar with. And these were the guys that made up the very first MLSPA executive board. And here's where they've landed now within the network. Ben Olson has been the coach of DC United for a number of years. Alexi Lawless has served as GM of LA Galaxy and New York Red Bull, as well as multiple media roles with ESPN and Fox and beyond. Chris Klein was the president of LA Galaxy. Landon Donovan has served as an analyst for multiple networks, including ESPN and Fox. Tim Howard has served as an analyst for TNT. Why is this important to point out? Well, the MLSPA executive board is charged with representing all MLS players, at the bargaining table when it comes to negotiating things like the CBA. But the executive board also represents the collective voice of the players when speaking to the public, whether it's in celebration of an achievement or in times of peril, such as a pandemic or mass protests. And like Mark McKenzie pointed out, the message hits differently when you feel like you're connected to the messenger. It comes down to minorities having the opportunity and the platform to express themselves, deliver a message, and ultimately represent their own communities. But it is those opportunities that are denied in this country. And the vicious cycle of network hiring, which we just discussed, is but one aspect that contributes to the ongoing problem that we face. What do I see? For quite some time, I've questioned whether or not MLS, and by extension the U.S. men's national team, properly represents the people that make up American soccer. It's hard to say what's coming next without putting it into some sort of context. So here it goes. I view American soccer through my lens. I grew up playing competitively and I ended my career after just one season of collegiate soccer. I've coached for more than 15 years, both boys and girls, and I've refereed at just about every level from youth recreational games to NCAA to men's semi-professional. Throughout all of my experiences playing and coaching, 
I've found it to be very rare that a Hispanic player has not been the best player on the field. Yet, growing up and into my adult years as a fan of American soccer, I've always found it strange that there were so few Hispanic players on the teams. Especially ones with the attacking skill sets that I was so accustomed to playing and coaching against in Central and Southern California. According to the census estimates from 2019, Los Angeles is a county comprised of nearly 50% Hispanics and Latinos. That culture is traditionally a soccer-first culture. But that isn't what I remember seeing on TV when I was growing up watching the LA Galaxy. The star players were Landon Donovan and David Beckham. Now don't get me wrong, those guys were great players. But what happened to all those Hispanic guys that I played against? And the guys that I coached? And the guys that I coached against? Did they just disappear? No. And I don't buy into the fall through the cracks narrative. I don't even buy into the system is broken narrative. Because I honestly believe that the system is working perfectly. Because the system is built upon a foundation of disenfranchisement. MLS, with permission granted by U.S. soccer, is purposefully designed to keep certain people in and keep certain people out. Yes, you heard me correctly. A closed league like MLS is all about exclusion. Community outreach programs or diversity task forces only serve as PR stunts due to the fact that they never really hit the essence of what inclusion and equal opportunity actually means. This is why we continually fight for a system designed around inclusion. Now, with all of that said, are you able to start seeing how the lack of diversity ties into something like promotion and relegation? Who represents who? In 2020, how is it that just two MLS franchises are supposed to accurately represent the soccer-rich culture of Los Angeles? The real answer is, they can't. Sure, there are USL teams and whatnot, but the real soccer culture in Los Angeles exists at the fringe, in men's leagues, pickup games, and other unaffiliated organizations that are effectively and purposefully excluded by U.S. soccer and MLS. This so-called fringe soccer culture is made up of primarily immigrant communities. I remember growing up watching my dad play with a group of Croatians in the men's leagues throughout the Bay Area. Croatians even put together yearly tournaments that coincide with Croatian Independence Day, where Croatian communities from across the country send teams to compete against each other. Each year, we'd see teams from Phoenix, San Jose, Las Vegas, Cleveland, and many more. These were teams that were made up of immigrants, or direct descendants of immigrants, and they could easily be identified as soccer-first people. And even though Croatians are white, they too were still mostly operating outside of the traditional American soccer system because of their cultural norms and their beliefs about the game. An example we're probably more familiar with is the term Mexican League, and it being used to describe Sunday men's leagues across the country. Why is this? Well, because most men's leagues are comprised of primarily Hispanic and Latino players, which represents, quite likely, the largest soccer-first demographic in our country. Again, I have personal experience with this as I have refereed in men's leagues for over a decade. Almost every weekend, game after game after game, I would be the only white person on the field. Actually, uh, it wasn't uncommon that I would be the only white person in the vicinity of the two fields that were allotted to the league. 
On one occasion, I was asked to referee a game between one of the top-ranked teams in our local men's league and the Chivas U-20 team from Mexico. The league sold tickets to the game at a price of $25, and they rented a local high school stadium to host the game. Several thousand people showed up, many wearing Chivas jerseys, singing Chivas songs, and asking for autographs of future Chivas stars. I can say with full confidence that it was the most attended game that I had ever refereed. Besides the local Cal Poly and UCSB soccer rivalry, it was the most attended game in our area. And MLS used to host preseason soccer games here. Even San Jose Earthquakes and other MLS franchises couldn't draw a crowd comparable to a men's league team versus Chivas's U-20s. Yet, this is the type of culture that U.S. soccer and MLS continues to exclude. Another great example of this fringe soccer culture rearing its head was when Eric Winalda led a group of what is best described as men's league players, primarily Hispanic and Latinos, into the U.S. Open Cup. That team actually beat MLS's Portland Timbers. At that time, Cal FC, the Sunday league team from Southern California, captivated our soccer nation, much like the story of Leicester City rising from obscurity and eventually winning the Premier League title. But the way that Leicester City rose through the ranks of England's lower divisions is not allowed here in American soccer. Therefore, the only chance teams not welcomed by MLS or USL have to compete is the U.S. Open Cup, which U.S. soccer has reportedly considered canceling on a number of occasions. According to Winalda, nine players from that Cal FC team went on to have opportunities with their national teams, whether that be camp invitations or actual caps. Most notably, Southern California native Richie Menjivar earned 41 caps for El Salvador and actually played against the United States. We also can't forget about the one time that there was an MLS franchise owner who was Mexican, but once he assumed a majority ownership and wanted to start implementing a culture for the Mexican community, he was quickly run out of town, and Chivas USA was shut down. But, of course, this is not the story that the establishment told the public. This is all supporting the idea that MLS and US soccer are not actually interested in welcoming diversity, whether we are talking about race, culture, or just opinions on how a team should be run. In other parts of the world, clubs operate with strict policies so that it is ensured that culture is represented. Athletic Bilbao in Spain is but one example. The club requires that a certain number of Basque players be maintained, thereby guaranteeing that this culture is given an opportunity. Tell me, what MLS franchise represents black culture or Latino culture? Those classifications themselves are far too broad. So I'll ask it a different way. What MLS franchise represents the Bronx or South Central? You see, operating within a closed system and a franchise-based model, like we have here with MLS, removes any sort of real identity and real culture from the equation. What we get instead is vanilla. Can this problem be solved? Absolutely. But here's the thing. The only way to accurately represent the soccer culture throughout Los Angeles is by providing opportunities for communities and their members to truly represent themselves. The same goes for the rest of the country. What does that mean in regard to soccer? We need an open merit-based system comprised of independently owned clubs 
each with unique identities in order to really embrace the idea of diversity. Communities like Bell Gardens, Compton, and Garden Grove all deserve the opportunity to represent themselves, just like the small city of Ibar can represent itself in Spain. These communities in LA are not accurately represented by the franchises like LA Galaxy or LAFC, nor do these franchises even begin to fully tap into the powerful soccer culture that exists throughout the greater Los Angeles area. Contrast that with Manchester, England. From 2005 to 2012, there were four clubs from the greater Manchester area playing in the Premier League, which is widely considered to be the most difficult league in the world. Those clubs were Manchester United, Manchester City, Wigan Athletic, and Bolton Wanderers. Now, am I trying to say that I think Los Angeles needs to have four first division clubs? No, absolutely not. What I'm trying to say is that Los Angeles could sustain many, many more professional clubs than it currently does. The same goes for our country as a whole. Having more independently owned clubs would better showcase the true footballing culture that exists here in America. But the incentives and opportunities must come into alignment before we would ever see Los Angeles and its minority communities and America as a whole reach its full footballing potential. The importance of independent club ownership. Like I mentioned in the intro, if we are talking about racism and diversity being a systemic thing, which more and more people seem to be coming around to, then the change itself must be a systemic one. And who has the power to enact systemic change? Owners. Ultimately, coaches, GMs, and all of the other positions within American soccer are just employees carrying out the will and the agenda of owners. They are puppets without real power. While there absolutely must be a continued effort to improve the diversity throughout the ranks, on and off the field, what really matters is the diversity of owners. Because ownership is where power resides. Until we have a diversity in ownership, both race and culture, these problems that we currently suffer from will persist. No amount of programs or initiatives or commissioner rules will genuinely improve the situation that we are in. Furthermore, having just one, two, or even a handful of minority owners of MLS franchises does basically nothing. Herein lies another issue with American soccer, something we will certainly elaborate on in future episodes. Even with minorities owning large percentages of MLS franchises, the franchises themselves are a reflection of MLS's ideals. MLS franchises are not independent clubs like we see throughout the rest of the world. MLS franchises are not unique in how they operate or in what they represent. Individual MLS franchises have no true identity or culture that separates one franchise from the next. LAFC represents the same thing as LA Galaxy. The owners of these MLS franchises are basically business partners, not competitors, like FC Barcelona and Real Madrid, for example. Unfortunately, MLS has already proven that it couldn't handle one franchise expressing even the slightest bit of its own unique individual identity and culture. They canceled Chivas USA, ran the owner out of town, and wiped itself clean 
of what they felt was a disastrous experiment. An experiment that didn't work precisely because Chivas USA was not allowed to truly represent Mexican culture. It wasn't real. It was plastic. It was an attempt to trick the Mexican community into thinking that this was going to represent them. And the Mexican community saw right through this. And what did they do? They never embraced it. So Chivas USA was shut down. The status quo was restored and has been maintained ever since. The point remains that ownership is the key to unlocking the real potential of our minority and immigrant cultures here in the United States. But we must recognize that franchise ownership is not a real solution. A franchise system is a closed system. A closed system is a gatekeeper system. And a gatekeeper system is, by definition, discriminatory. Conclusion. Always remember that the advocacy and the struggle for promotion and relegation is one about inclusion. It's a struggle against a system that excludes the vast majority of people for the benefit of a few. If we really want equality and diversity, the closed system that U.S. soccer enables and MLS benefits from must be undone. If we continue with the current system, we will only further entrench our nation in these same problems. I'll leave you with these questions. Why is it so hard to illuminate this? Why can't we point it out and focus our efforts there? Why do we pretend that this isn't the issue? Change, real change, isn't about cosmetic PR moves that you'll see from most MLS and U.S. soccer outlets. Meaningful change is opening the system so anyone can build and rise to power. If organizations and people aren't fighting for that, they aren't fighting for change at all. So, do we really want change or not? Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode. You have probably become accustomed to us answering questions at the end of every episode. And after speaking with Gary about this week's question and answer, we decided that it warranted its own standalone podcast. So we didn't want to include it and bury it in the end of an episode because we feel like it's too important and it needs to be front and center. So be on the lookout for that in the coming days. And we will be back next week to answer more questions about this episode, about any of the previous topics, just send us whatever's on your mind and we want to have the discussion with you. Thank you so much for listening and we will catch you guys next time here on the 343 Podcast. Our flagship program helps coaches and trainers discern what is good for their teams and for their players. But now we've created a program for parents because parents, you are personal trainers too. Yep, that's right. And in order to properly mentor your player, you need to know what's good and what's not. Just like coaches, you and your player are flooded with thousands of training videos on YouTube and Instagram. But most of them are a waste of time because they aren't relevant. They don't translate to the real game. And figuring out what does and what doesn't and why is just flat out difficult, especially if you don't have a background in soccer to lean on. 
So we've taken Brian Kleiben's more than 20 years of experience working with teams and individual players from U9 to U19 and extracted valuable lessons that can help you navigate the minefield that is American youth soccer. But this isn't just about drills. That's only a small fraction of it. And to be honest, you can get drills anywhere. What you're getting with the 343 Masterclass are the cultural lessons and an education and philosophy that other trainers and courses don't offer. It's these elements that can help you understand the landscape, read the game on and off the field, and translate everything into real development for your player. Right now, you can get on the list for the 343 Masterclass. We are currently rolling it out little by little to small groups. To reserve your spot, go to 343masterclass.com. All right. Thank you for listening. Do you have a question about the topic that we covered in this episode? If so, we'd love to hear from you and we will be answering some of your questions at the end of next week's episode. Submit your questions on Twitter or head to 343coaching.com to leave your question in the comment section. Make sure that you are subscribed to 343FM on your favorite podcasting app. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and many more platforms. And if you're feeling super generous, we'd love it if you dropped us a five-star rating or a review. And don't forget that you can find our entire library of podcast episodes, over 200 written articles, and our online courses that help accelerate the development of coaches and players using methods that have been proven to work here in the United States. Once again, all of that can be found at 343coaching.com. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next time here on the 343 Podcast.